Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm delighted to be joined today by Professor Hugh Kennedy. Hugh Kennedy is a professor of Arabic at the School of Oriental and African Studies, University of London. He's been studying the history of the Caliphate for almost 50 years and has written numerous books including The Courts of the Caliphs, published in 2004, and The Great Arab Conquest, published in 2007. I'm very happy to say that his new book, Caliphate, An Idea Through History, is due to be published by Pelican Books in June 2016 and is also the topic of our discussion today. Professor Hugh Kennedy, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Kind introduction. Now, I'd like to start by asking you to describe to us very briefly what the premise of the book is. The, the current proposed title of Caliphate, an idea through history, seems to be filling a clear and important gap in dealing with this subject as a whole. What is your approach to this topic? I got interested in writing this book clearly because of current discussions about the caliphate and particularly the revival of the idea of caliphate uh, by ISIS, Daesh, call them what you're going to, uh, in uh, their new caliphate in northern Syria and Iraq. And that the, a lot of comment from journalists and others reveals that people have very little idea what the term caliphate means. It's very term it's very easy to be frightened of because it seems to come with perhaps sinister and authoritarian overtones and so on. And what I want to do in this book is to, as it were, revisit the use of the word caliphate and title caliph through the centuries of Islamic history from the time of the death of Prophet Muhammad onwards, when it, this, the term first comes into use, right through until the uh, present day. But the purpose of the book is more than simply to give a chronological outline and sort of uh, tap references to the, the, the different places this term has been used. It's very much to, as I think, almost to reclaim a vision of Islamic history. Uh, the propagandists of ISIS and other similar groups have given us an, an uh, idea of Islamic history recently, which is very, um, shall we say, dur, it's very... Uh, it's it's very narrow. It's very much concerned with um, establishing Islamic history as a basis for orthopraxy, i.e. looking for Islamic history and telling us how orthodox Muslims and strict Muslims ought to behave at different times and so on. What has been edited out is the vast variety of caliphal and political experience, the different attempts that different groups of Muslims have made through the centuries to find a political system that works for them and which enables them to conduct true Muslim lives, uh, but which is also satisfies their material needs, protects them from their enemies, and so on. The term... The idea of the caliphate has been narrowed down to a very single-minded vision. What I want to do is talk about uh, the different eras of the caliphate, and particularly about multiculturalism, about cosmopolitan outlooks, about receptivity to new ideas that all come in different stages of different caliphates. Caliphate is a, uh, a focus for display, to a focus for display of the uh, wealth and power of the Muslim community as expressed through its leaders, and the variety of different interpretations to such important questions as what should a caliph do, what sort of powers should a caliph have, and who, and most elementary of all perhaps, who should be the caliph, 
how should the caliph be chosen? And to point out, in the end, there are lots of people who have come to lots of different answers about these questions. There is no one single vision. And from time to time in the recent discussions, people have said things like, what is the legal definition of a caliphate? What does Islamic law say about who should become caliph? And these are surprisingly difficult questions to answer in a very specific way. And there are no generally accepted rules and regulations. And uh, the idea and the office of caliphate most obviously is very different in Shia Islam than it is in Sunni Islam. But even within Sunni Islam, there is a huge variety of opinions and ideas. And again, at another level, a huge variety of opinions and ideas about what the modern relevance of it is. And um, these are all ideas that I'm trying to explain. The book begins by setting the scene with the emergence of the Khalifa after the death of the Prophet in 632. And this is followed by the orthodox Rashidun caliphs. What would you say characterised the first caliphs of Islamic history? Immediate questions are asked after the death of who should be caliph? How should the caliph be chosen? Yes, I think the the idea of the office of caliphate, of the caliphate, is an immediate response by the Muslim community to the extraordinary position that the Muslims found themselves in at the time of death of Prophet Muhammad, in six three two, because at least according to uh, Sunni opinion, Prophet Muhammad left no designated successor or heir, and this meant that. The, there were two immediate questions that confronted the Muslim community at this stage. Firstly, was there going to be a leader and what powers would that leader have? And secondly, who would that leader be? And according to the uh, traditional accounts, and we've got no reason really to disbelieve them, all this was decided very quickly when Prophet Muhammad died. And the uh, leadership was taken by a small group of Qurayshi uh, Muslims, that is Muslims from Mecca, who had come to settle in Medina at the time of the Great Hijra in 62. And they took the initiative here and they appointed one of them, chose one of their number, Abu Bakr, who was a, a, an old man by this stage and had worked with the Prophet Muhammad for uh, many years. Uh, as their new leader. And they seem to have given him two titles, though the early evidence for these titles is, is a bit slender. One of them was Khalifa, Caliph in English. Now, Caliph is an ambiguous word. It either means a deputy, somebody who substitutes for somebody else, or it means a successor. And this gave rise to a lot of uncertainty uh, when trying to work out what the office of, of, of caliph meant. The other title was more simple and more straightforward, which was Amir al-Mu'minin, or Commander of the Faithful, as it's usually rendered in English. And that simply referred to the uh, new leader, the caliph, if you like, um, uh, leadership in warfare and so on. The caliph's role as, as it were, army commander and chief executive, so to speak, of the, of the new community. The term, term Khalifa is much more fraught with ambiguity because the implications are 
profound. Uh, if the is the caliph to be the deputy of God on earth, or as the Arabic phrase goes, Khalifat Allah fi ardihim. And um, if he is, then this is a position of enormous power because in a sense, God has appointed him and he is God's representative on earth. And people who believed in the absolute power of the caliphs and so on would tend to this interpretation. And indeed, research recently has shown that this is the oldest interpretation. And it has Quranic precedence. The word Khalifa, Caliph, is used twice in the Quran to refer to individuals. The first of them is Adam, who is arguably the first of the Caliphs. And the second is David, King of Israel, who is referred to as the Khalifa to Allah, is appointed as Khalifa to Allah, uh, the Caliph of God on earth. The other viewpoint was that it means successor and that the real title is not Khalifat Allah, but Khalifat Rasulullah, which means the, well, what does it mean? But it means fundamentally the successor of the Prophet Muhammad. Now, Prophet Muhammad, all Muslims agree, was the last of the prophets. There was never any discussion about that. So the new caliph to be a successor of Muhammad couldn't be another prophet. The new caliph had to be a successor of uh, Prophet Muhammad in, as it were, the secular aspects or the, uh, of his uh, work and the, success, the secular aspects of his leadership, commanding armies, organizing taxation, that sort of uh, uh, things that a, a new community demanded. But And that much was clear. But there's an ambiguity about... For example, should the Khalifa have the power to, or the authority to interpret Quran, those difficult, mysterious bits of Quran that Muslims have discussed for centuries and centuries um, and still remain in many cases ambiguous? Should the Khalifa have the power to decide what Islamic law or what became known as Sharia, what Sharia was? Uh, or not, or should this be left to other people? And so the, this what appears to be a little sort of semantic dispute, really, almost, about whether it's Khalifa Allah or Khalifa Rasulullah actually has profound implications uh, for looking at the office of caliphate. And it's really with these different uh, opinions that the whole debate, dispute, discussion about caliphate begins. And the, the issues that were raised in these very early days of after the death of Prophet Muhammad uh, are still being raised today as people try to imagine what a caliphate might look like. So how did the caliphate pass into the hands of the Umayyads after these first few caliphs? Their, their caliphate was disputed. They were known as illegitimate and uh, they would be succeeded later on by the Abbasids, uh, what you call the imperial caliphates. What was this process? How did it happen? The first four caliphs, um, Abu Bakr, Omar ibn al-Khattab, uh, uh, Uthman ibn Affan, and Ali ibn Abi Talib, are in a sense the people who in different ways define the office for future generations. Where you stand on the first four caliphs defines your position on the uh, Sunni-Shi'i divide. For the 
majority of the Sunni community, the first four caliphs are the incomparable exemplars of what a ruler should be. For the Shia, the first three caliphs um, are essentially the people who deprived Ali ibn Abi Talib of his true inheritance as the successor of Prophet Muhammad. So very different views about this. But there is, uh, well, Abu Bakr and Umar command the respect, even among the Shia population of, of most of the case. The third caliph, Uthman, from 644 to 656, is a much more controversial character because Uthman uh, was murdered by insurgents from the Muslims of Iraq and Egypt. And where you stand on the murder of Uthman is uh, a major dividing point among uh, Muslims. Between those who argue that Uthman may not have been a perfect leader, nonetheless he was the leader um, appointed by God, and nonetheless the Muslims should follow uh, the leader for fear of fitna, that is to say for fear of division amongst the Muslim population. There is another point of view that Uthman's sins or what he did was so wrong uh, that he was unqualified to be a caliph and it was only right to uh, get rid of him and replace him by somebody, in this case, Ali ibn Abi Talib, who was more suited for the job. So the discussions about caliphate constantly look back to these traumatic events. But in reality, uh, the power passed, uh, not without struggles and, and, and uh, debates and so on, into the hands of the family of the Umayyads. Now, the Umayyads were an interesting family. They came from the aristocracy of Mecca. But the key point for understanding, I think, the Umayyad dilemma was that they were politically very powerful because they controlled Syria and the resources of Syria. But they were on weak ground because, as a family, they had opposed Prophet Muhammad and his mission through most of his life. Or most of them had, not all of them. And this meant that when they seized power, there were many in the Muslim community who felt that they were, in a sense, illegitimate. Here were the enemies of the Prophet who had taken over the Prophet's own ummah, the Prophet's own community. Nevertheless, the Umayyads provided a strong and effective government for the Muslim community for the 90 years when they provided caliphs. And they provided a model of the caliphate, which was very much a, um, a ruler, a very much a monarchical uh, model of the caliphs. Uh, succession within the family, uh, the uh, the rulers, the caliph's name on the coins, the caliph's name on monumental inscriptions, one of which still survives in the Dome of the Rock, but other places as well. Uh, the caliph as decider of legal cases, uh, the caliph as, not if not in person, leader of the armies, uh, well, at least the person who appointed the leader of the armies, the, the um, the caliph as the leader of the Muslims against the Byzantines, the caliph who were assured the safe passage of Hajj to uh, uh, Mecca and Medina. But the Umayyads, in a way, never, over, never got over this legitimacy deficit. In the year 750, there's this big revolution, and the family of the Abbasids overthrow the Umayyads with support, basically from people of Iraq and people of Muslims, that is, of, of Iraq and the Muslims of Iran. Uh, the Abbasids come to, as it were, restore a true Islamic rule. The great strength of the Abbasids in ideological terms was that they could be considered as the family of the Prophet. But 
they too suffered a legitimacy deficit in the sense that they were of the family of the prophet, but they were descendants of the prophet's uncle, Abbas, hence the name of his paternal uncle, Abbas, but not of the prophet himself. And uh, the, the descent of the prophet himself passed through the prophet's two grandsons, Hassan and Hussein. And for many Muslims uh, still, the Abbasids were not really members of the family or not really direct descendants of Prophet Muhammad. And they constantly had to counter this. Nonetheless, the Abbasid Caliphate in its first half century, or its first century really, was an immensely powerful organization. It depended, like the Umayyads had done before them, on the collection of regular taxes and the payment of a regular army. It became very much a an imperial caliphate, if you like, comparable in lots of ways with the Roman emperor, the empire that had preceded it. But always there was this strand of opposition and questioning to caliphal authority. And this came to a head really in the third century of Islam. So we're talking about the ninth century of the common era, when the caliph Ma'mun in many ways, a very enlightened and, and, and cultivate, cultured and cultivated monarch, decided to impose a view on the Muslim population about the contentious but impossible to sort out argument about the createdness of the Quran. Now, I don't think this, perhaps there's time to go into details about why this was an important issue. But what, one of the things that was important was the caliph was attempting to decide on Muslim doctrine. And this provoked a huge amount of opposition. And it provoked opposition in the city of Baghdad amongst a group that are becoming more and more important at this time, the ulama, the learned people. And the ulama were learned, uh, particularly in the field of Islamic law and the traditions, the hadith of Prophet Muhammad. And they set themselves up to counter and oppose this idea of the caliph as a lawmaker and say, no, you can't do that. The caliph has, has no right to decide about Islamic law. It's we, the ulama, we, the people who know what Prophet Muhammad said in these thousands and thousands of hadiths that are brought down to us, and the caliph's power to make decision is illegitimate. And in the end, they sort of won. And this was a very important moment in Islamic history because the caliph, the secular ruler, could no longer claim to be a lawmaker, could no longer to be claimed to be an interpreter of Quran. And that is the beginning of the undermining, shall we say, of the status and power of the caliphate, because a ruler who can't make laws is only half a ruler. So this is when we can observe the problems of the Abbasid Caliphate leading to its later fragmentation. The problems of the uh, Abbasids were increased because of the economic problems and the particular economic problems in Iraq, which meant that the uh, dynasty that was able to employ the most powerful army in the world, probably, uh, in the 8th century, by the beginning of the 10th century, was for, uh, faced by a small, usually mutinous, and almost totally ineffective uh, military force. And the caliphate breaks up in the 10th century. But the breakup of the caliphate is a complicated business. It's partly the misfortunes of the Abbasids, but it's partly something else that's going on that's very important. And that is the conversion of populations around the Middle East to Islam. 
we must remember that there is a big difference between conquest, which is the Arab Muslim military conquest of the 7th century and the beginning of the 8th, and conversion of the majority of the population of these areas to Islam. The first is a quick and violent process. The second is a much longer process. The conversion of people, the majority to Islam, is a longer process, possibly taking five centuries to reach a numerical majority even in the Middle East. And it's almost entirely peaceful. There are very few uh, records of, of, of forcible conversion to Islam. But as more and more people in different areas became Muslims, in a curious way, their allegiance to the caliphs in Baghdad weakened. You get Muslims in Egypt or Muslims in northeastern Iran, in around Bukhara and Samarkand and all the other, who are devout Muslims, but their loyalties lie to their region. They are Iranian Muslims or Khorasani Muslims from northeast Iran. Uh, they're Egyptian Muslims primarily. Uh, their connections, they never go to they never see a caliph. Their connections with the central government in Baghdad are extremely tenuous. And by and by, local rulers, local Muslim rulers in all cases, come and take over the power that the Abbasids had previously had. So in a paradoxical way, the breakup of the Abbasid caliphate, which happens in the 10th century, uh, which led to the, as it were, the political disunity of Islam, was a sign, a symptom, a consequence in fact, of the success of Islam in proselytizing and spreading amongst all sorts of varieties of populations. This is one of the, I mean, I think this is a fundamental to understand this if we are looking at the long-term question of why the caliphate was never, so to speak, put back together again. It's a, because it, the breakup of the caliphate is not just something that happened by accident because rulers were useless, but it was a consequence of long-term um, social, economic, and above all, religious change. So after the Abbasid fragmentation, uh, perhaps surprisingly, the end of the caliphate didn't occur as a result of the uh, invading crusader armies, but were due to the invasions of the Mongols from the east who conquered the city of Baghdad in 1258 and are vividly described as uh, rolling up the last Abbasid caliph in a carpet and had him trampled to death under the hooves of their horses. So from 1258 uh, to, let's say, the 1300s, when uh, the title of the caliph reemerges in, uh, in, in the Ottoman context, what happens to this title uh, of caliph? Is it, is, it, is it lost? Is it still used? The title of the caliphate, uh, it becomes, it's still used. Uh, a number of Abbasids escaped from the massacre at Baghdad, to which you've been talking about, 
to Cairo, were under the patronage of the Mamluk sultans from really from 1260 right through to uh, the Ottoman conquest of 1517. They uh, were maintained, as, but strictly as figureheads, with one very slight exception, they played no part in the politics. They were revered as possibly as religious advisers, not the Mamluks normally needed much religious advice, um, and as uh, symbols of continuity, but their political power was negligible. And the last of these uh, shadowy uh, caliphs disappeared in the aftermath of the uh, Ottoman conquest. And from then on, the main claimants to the title of caliph were the Ottoman dynasty. The Ottomans don't seem to really use this title, caliph. It's in 1517 when Selim the Grim, or Yavuz Sultan Selim, conquered Cairo, ending the Mamluk Sultanate, that there seems to be a revival of the use of the title of caliph and caliphate. Why was this the case? Why didn't they use it as often before? Well, curiously, the early Ottomans didn't weren't really interested in the title of, of caliphs. There were sultans and there were emirs and there were ghazis, but they weren't uh, uh, caliphs. And the indeed, immediately after 1517, they don't immediately pick up the idea of caliph or they don't use it. They What they do get in 1517 is the right to be the protectors of the holy places, the haramain. And that gives them a sort of leadership position, which they were to retain right through until 1918 uh, in the Muslim community as uh, patrons and guardians of the pilgrimage, which is a very important issue. Uh, but it really isn't until the 17th century, I think I'm right in saying, that we first begin to get the discussion amongst the Ottomans of the use of the t title caliph as well as sultan. Sultan always, throughout the Ottoman period, is the title Caliph is, is, is an added on thing. There is a, a, a discussion uh, in, by one Lutfi Pasha in the 17th century about can, in what basis do the Ottomans have for being caliphs. Now, uh, they could not claim, they never did claim, to be members of Quraysh, the family of the Prophet. And there was a the tribe of the prophet, excuse me, not the family, uh, the tribe of the prophet, for there was a long tradition in Sunni political thought that the caliph should be a member of Quraysh, the tribe of the prophet, and indeed the present ISIS caliphate in uh, northern Syria and Iraq uh, makes a point of saying the caliph should be a member of Quraysh, and uh, the so-called caliph Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi claims to be, and probably is, a, a descendant of, of, of Quraysh. So they, they couldn't do it on that background. They couldn't really do it on the second, as it were, plank of caliphal legitimacy, which was being designated by a previous caliph. There was a story later on that the last of the Abbasids of Cairo had handed over his power to uh, the first of the Ottomans, but that seems to be a story that's, that comes up in the 19th century and has no historical basis. The real reason for um, saying that the Ottomans should be caliph was that they were the most powerful Muslim Sunni rulers. And that it was that. It was a question of power and might and leadership of the Muslim community that enabled the Ottomans to claim the title of caliph. But even so, it was a title they used only intermittently. 
It was a title they sometimes used when addressing foreign ambassadors and dignitaries. It's not really until the late 19th century, in the time of Abdul Hamid II, uh, that we begin to get Ottomans who see the potential of the office of caliphate and so on. And Abdul Hamid tries in various ways to use the office of caliphate to create, as it were, Muslim solidarity. Muslim solidarity in the Ottoman Empire, uh, which was important at a time when Arab Muslims were increasingly restless under what they thought was Turkish rule, they saw as Turkish rule. But even Muslim solidarity in areas outside the Ottoman Empire, in Egypt and even in British India, there was, uh, Abdul Hamid seems to have experimented with ideas and uh, his successors at the time of the First World War certainly tried to exploit this idea of the Ottomans as the caliphs of all the Muslims. Not, it may be said, to any great effect. And there are other things that Abdul Hamid did. Uh, the building of the Hijaz Railway was a very, very caliphal thing to do in the old sense. His predecessors as caliphs through the centuries, one of their main tasks had been safeguarding and facilitating the Hajj. Here, in a very interesting way, it was the caliph facilitating the Hajj, but with the technology of the early 20th century, but resuming the old role, seizing the old role of the um, protector of, of the pilgrims. So it seems that this title of caliph in the, in the Ottoman context seems to be a bit of an add-on, an add-on to their title, the, the most important one, that of sultan. Would you agree with that? Do you, do you think that that's, uh, that's something that we yeah. see? It's essentially an add-on which could be useful in certain cases. And I think uh, the, talked about the Arab Muslims of the Middle East. Uh, could uh, The idea was that they could relate to the Ottoman authorities as caliphs uh, more easily than as sultans and so on. Um, and they made a point of collecting this rather strange group of objects in a way which are the regalia or the uh, relics, if you like, of, of the caliphs, the sword of Prophet Muhammad and so on, that are kept in the uh, top class of the right and can be visited to the present day. And they make a point of this. But basically, it's an add-on. Uh, it doesn't form the substance of their power. And of course, with the abolition of the Sultanate, there is a curious two-year period when the uh, last of the Ottoman uh, rulers is no longer sultan, but still claims to be caliph from 1922 to 1924, before the caliphate is finally abolished by uh, Mustafa Kemal. And of course, this idea of the caliphate has been brought back by ISIS or Daesh, uh, they seem to be using a lot of references to the past and to previous caliphs, quite notably Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi wearing black and using the colour as a symbol, a reflection of the past, perhaps. What observations have you made in regards to references to previous caliphates in history? One of the things that distinguishes the uh, ISIS movement is its emphasis on caliphate. Compared with other Islamic revivalist uh, movements, like, for example, the uh, Muslim Brotherhood, the Ikhwan in Egypt, whose premise has always been that in an ideal world there should be a caliph, but actually moral reform of the Muslims must come first, expulsion of uh, uh, foreign rulers must come first, the caliphate is a distant objective. And most uh, Muslim reformers have in fact taken this view. The beginning of another attitude seems to come with the, the formation of Hizbah Tahrir, in, um, in in Jordan-Palestine uh, in the 1950s. And Hizbah Tahrir seemed to have 
been the pioneers of promoting the idea of first you create a caliphate. The caliphate should be an instrument of this Muslim revival rather than a consequence of it. And so the idea of caliphate becomes frontline, so to speak, in, in this discussion. And this is an idea that was taken up by uh, Abu Mus'ab al-Sakkarwi, who is in many ways the originator of ISIS in Iraq in the uh, first five years of the 21st century. But it's something that ISIS has really plugged into. And you're right to draw attention to the um, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the caliph. He looks, he dresses like an Abbasid caliph. He dresses in black. Black is very important for the symbolism of this because the Abbasids uh, made a great fetish, really, of, of, of their black robes and so on as a symbol of caliphate. And if you read uh, the uh, propaganda of, 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 the, of ISIS, as you find it in their, their periodical, their online periodical, Darbik and so on, there are constant references to the early caliphs. That is really where they find their legitimacy. Uh, not in later Muslim heroes. Uh, the great Saladin, Salah al-Din, doesn't appear in the pantheon of, of these people's um, heroes at all. It's Prophet Muhammad, obviously, and the early caliphs and the companions, the Sahaba of the Prophet. So they constantly look back. They use, manipulate, and sometimes, I'm sure, invent uh, it, records of what the earliest Muslims did and what the early caliphs did as a way of justifying what they're doing at the moment. Historicism, or the uh, investigation of history, is extremely important for these people's view of themselves and the view of themselves that they try to portray for the rest of the Muslim world. And we sort of miss this because uh, the sort of outsiders and, and Westerners and so on miss it, uh, where we think that all this propaganda is aimed at us. But a huge amount of ISIS propaganda is aimed at other Muslim groups in Syria and Iraq, other Muslim, what we might call fundamentalist groups, Islamist groups in Syria and Iraq, explaining why they are the people with the pure and original message of caliphate. And these other people are in various ways deviating from this pure message. You've mentioned Darbuk there online publication. Uh, from what you, you've said previously, it seems that uh, these references that they make uh, to the previous caliphates are quite obscure. They're not clear. Not everyone can pick up on these references. W what's the thinking behind that? What's the aim behind that? I think ISIS is deliberately trying to claim the intellectual high ground here that in order to understand why we're right, you have to know a lot about early Islamic history. You have to know a lot about the, uh, the hadiths of Prophet Muhammad and so on. This understanding the full implications of the caliphate and so on is not for ordinary people. They should basically be accepting. Uh, for those who are part of the scholarly elite, why then you can go and look at the, the, the reasons, the examples, and uh, above all, the, the the Hadith traditions, the works of um, Ibn Abdul Wahhab in the 18th century, Ibn Taymiyyah in the 14th century. Those are the only two intellectuals of a later period for whom they have any respect. But it's, it's the knowledge 
economy, if you like, of ISIS is a very elitist view of how you justify these things. And it goes back to all sorts of trends in Islam about interpretations of Quran and so on, and uh, the difference between the zahir, the obvious outward meaning of Quran, which is for ordinary people, and the batin, which is the uh, secret meaning of Quran known only to the intellectuals. And in some ways, though that's a very Shi'i concept, which of course the uh, ISIS would reject entirely, um, ISIS nonetheless picks up on this idea that there is an elite view. And this, in a curious way, the fact that they can, that this knowledge is power means that they can say to their uh, ordinary followers, so to speak, you have to do this because we know that that's what the Sahaba did. We know that that's what the first caliphs did. So you better believe us. So it clearly isn't sufficient to declare oneself caliph. It requires legitimacy. And it seems that Darbuk is doing this by making these obscure references to the past and to the first caliphs. The general message that runs through the book is that the idea of the caliphate is a rich and varied tradition that has been applied in various different ways. Would you have any last few comments to conclude on this idea of the caliphate through history? I think the overall conclusion must be that caliphate is an idea that is unlikely to die. The idea that there could be a particularly Islamic form of leadership and, and so on, as expressed by the caliphate, rather than by kingdoms or, or sultans or something, is an idea that has existed for the last 1,500 years at least and is unlikely to disappear. But again, we have to get away from this very narrow interpretation of what a caliphate should be. And when the caliphate was first proclaimed, we got all sorts of statements from American politicians that, you know, establishing a caliphate was the worst thing that could possibly happen, seeing it as a sort of evil fascist organization. But a caliphate can mean many, many different things. It can be a pluralist, quasi-democratic uh, form of, of, of rulership. It could be an, an iron-fisted uh, dictatorship. But all these are latent possibilities in the ideas of caliphate. There is no one model. There are lots of different models. There is no one exclusive view. There are lots of different uh, views which incorporate all sorts of multiculturalism, all sorts of uh, different ideas and the play of different ideas and so on. It's a rich and varied heritage. And if this book is intended to do one single thing, it's to rescue this rich and varied heritage from the monopoly, if you like, that people like ISIS have tried to establish over it. And on that note, I think it would be a good time to end. Professor Hugh Kennedy, thank you very much for taking part. Well, thank you for uh, what I hope has been an interesting discussion for us all. I certainly enjoyed it. If you'd like to find out more, you can go to our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where there is a relevant bibliography on this topic. You'll also be able to find other podcasts on all things Ottoman. Do also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where you can get updates on the latest podcasts. I'm Thailand Gingersh. Thanks for listening. Müzik